Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. In this episode of Law Talks, we are interviewing Chloe Morgan, who is both a civil litigation solicitor at a Tier 1 litigation department, and also the recently retired number one goalkeeper for Crystal Palace Women's Football Club in the FA Women's Championships. Chloe discusses her extensive career and her admirable work as a diversity inclusivity activist. Okay, so it's safe to say you've had a very unique career and still have quite a unique career. Uh, can you please give us an overview of your career so far? Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, when I was growing up, I started playing football from quite a young age. I was about uh, five, six, seven or so, and I'd be playing football on the street. And um, it was mainly kind of boys at that time. It was just boys playing football. And we were quite fortunate, actually, that we had a girls team. But, I mean, we weren't very good. We were pretty shocking. And there was no sort of real training or anything like that. And, um, yeah, I just played because I absolutely loved it. But I didn't play because I ever had any ambitions of, you know, going pro. Or I didn't even realise that that was, you know, a career that kind of existed at that time. And, you know, um, without sort of giving away my age, I mean, this was like... 25 30 years ago so it wasn't like you just turn on the tv or go and google things I mean the internet wasn't even invented so it wasn't like you could even just sort of research what was out there um so I think for me like growing up I had always anticipated that I would become a lawyer so um did the GCSEs and A levels uh went to University of Leeds did a law degree there for three years came back lived with my parents in London did the LPC and then um uh, got a training contract fairly soon after. I was quite lucky um, to get a training contract with a firm in Essex, um, which was amazing. I think I was about 22, 21 at the time. Um, yeah, sort of straight out of uni. And then um, at the same time, I'd started playing football again, but just for a grassroots team, just um, late in ladies, which was actually managed by my dad, um, Coach Clive at the time, um, which caused all kinds of friction at home and on the pitch. Um, but he was amazing. He was a really good coach, actually. Um, and then, yeah, I was sort of playing football and then doing uh, law alongside that as a trainee. And um, then it was one of our games that um, the goalkeeper at the time, she 
dislocated her knee during a game and I decided to step in because I was playing defence at this yeah. time. Um, yeah, her kneecap kind of moved to the side of her knee. It was, it was absolutely horrendous. But I thought, you know, we've got like 20 minutes left, 30 minutes left of the game. I'll jump in. What can possibly go wrong? Like, I mean, I'll, I'll just be launching myself around. I've got no goalkeeper training. Let's just give it a go. So went in, um, did a fairly okay job and then realised that I absolutely loved it and I didn't want to get out of goal. Um, and then finished off the season in goal because she was out with an injury for, for the entire year. And um, yeah, carried on loving it, sort of picking up a few bits and pieces from uh, other goalkeepers that I'd watch and things. And um, yeah, then eventually trialled for, for Spurs. But I mean, Spurs at that time, and we're talking, you know, 10, 11, 12 years ago was completely different to how it is now. I mean, it was fairly grassroots. I think we were at um, national level at the time. So two leagues below WSL. And we were training once or twice a week. Um, you know, still paying to play, playing on really dodgy pitches, you know, bringing our own sandwiches to games, that kind of vibe. Like it was a really low key type thing. So even though you'd say, oh, I'm playing for Spurs, it really didn't mean anything back then. Um, and because the training sessions were in the evening, I was able to then, you know, still do my uh, training contract and, and go to work and it, there was no real conflict. So, um, yeah, so after that, I, um, yeah, kind of um, carried on playing for Spurs. We ended up Ended up leaving Spurs actually the year after to join Arsenal um, in their squad for a year and then going back to Spurs and then we ended up just getting promoted and promoted and ended up being the right place at the right time and all of a sudden we were in the WSL and it was just a bit, a bit of a whirlwind, yeah. Um, so yeah, and then just obviously was doing my, finished my training contract and and, uh, and qualified and uh, I've moved firms a couple of times since then but yeah, it's been a bit of a mad one, really. <laughs> yeah, I'm shattered. It's amazing. <laughs> Honestly. Absolutely shattered. Even like moving up the leagues as well, to see that over your career, so impressive. Um, I think it, it wasn't anything that I really expected would happen. Mm. I mean, when I first started playing for Spurs, I loved, we had such a good group of girls, like really talented girls, um, you know, some who were really ambitious and had ambitions to go into WSL and championship, but a lot of us were just playing because we loved it. And we just had um, girls who were sort of very naturally talented, but also, you know, they were still doing full-time jobs as well. We had managers, head teachers. Uh, there was a girl training to be a doctor, um, physiotherapist, all, all these kind of jobs that they were doing on the side. Um, and then when we got into championship, that's when it really stepped up and we started doing three, four evenings a week. And and then eventually, yeah, when, once we got into WSL, I had to choose between, yeah, law and, law and football. So, yeah, it was, um, yeah, big decisions. Yeah, big decisions. <laughs> Yeah, that sounds such an impressive career progression as you kept going on. And um, you've obviously really shown how you kind of got really inspired by football and you followed that as a career. And on the other side of that, what sort of inspired you to originally go into law? Why was that kind of your, um, what you'd always knew you wanted to do, as you said? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, it sounds like a really cheesy answer and it's actually genuinely true. Um, but when I was, I think I was quite young, sort of maybe around 11, 12 years old or so, and I'd was watching um, Erin Brockovich. I don't even know whether you guys would know that film I or not. I have a confession, right? Okay. When I was researching you and these questions, <laughs> I saw you talk about that in an article. Yeah. I've always heard of Legally Blonde, but I've never heard of this film. Really? So I watched it last night. It's amazing. I loved it. I don't know if you've seen <laughs> it. I have no idea what you guys Yeah, it's, it's quite, it's a very old film. <laughs> um, but it's, I mean, it's a brilliant. It's um, Julia Roberts and she basically, um, she plays a woman who has no legal training whatsoever. She was working as like an admin assistant and then starts working for a law firm, gets really passionate about it and then mm -hmm. 
takes down, I mean, I, I really hope this isn't a spoiler alert here, no, but no, um, <laughs> ends up taking down like a really big corporation who are like poisoning the water. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, watching that, I think um, there was something about that that really appealed to me, that kind of, mm -hmm. she was with clients, she was helping them, she was, um, I don't know, it just, it was really, it was quite an emotive film. And I think it really got to me at like 11, 12 years old. And I thought, you know what, I think I would quite like to go into law and um, yeah, that's, that's just kind of how it went, yeah. And then from then, I just, I just thought that law was going to be something that I do, and I just, I kind of had tunnel vision with it, yeah. yeah so it's, there are always those things that have such a big impact in your childhood that you just always remember, even as you're like ten years on. Massively, yeah. I actually, it's so, so weird. Okay, I've never watched that movie. But <laughs> I literally think last week there was like clips of it coming up because is there a scene where um, he comes in and he's like, "Oh, the women in the office don't like how you're dressed" or something? Yeah. Yes. And she's like. Well, that's she like gives me a complete mouthful, and I thought it was really iconic. Yes, it I is. I've watched the whole movie, but I've seen that one scene. I mean, it's because it's based on a yeah. true story. Really? Um, yeah, so it's just even more incredible. So, um, yeah, but it's just the way it's written. It's really yeah. humorous. It's like really down to earth, and um, yeah, just uh, just really got me. Yeah, I'm watching that tonight. I think. Absolutely, <laughs> you've got it. <laughs> <That's great. laughs> Amazing. Um, so going back to the sort of dual career part yep. of your life. Um, how did you juggle the demands of playing at such a high level and working, you know, full-time job training contract? They're notoriously tough. You yeah. know, that must have been <laughs> a challenge. How did you do it? Um, I think at various points in my legal and football career, there always had to be decisions, like quite hard decisions that were made. Um, I think it was fairly easy at the start because the football that we were playing was quite... Um, national level at that time was sort of almost grassroots so we were only training you know once twice evenings in the week and you know the training schedule wasn't really that killer I could kind of juggle that with law quite easily um but then as soon as we started to step up into championship and then we were doing um three evenings a week initially and then four evenings a week and um and at that time we were kind of pushing for promotion as well so you know, you're going into training, you know, six, seven o'clock at night. You're not getting out of there till like 10, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock sometimes because you're doing like the analysis for the games, you're doing the pitch work and then you're doing the strength and conditioning stuff afterwards. And, and that's after a full day of, you know, getting your head around cases and all the, you know, the challenges that come with, you know, having clients and a full caseload. And um, yeah, it was definitely really tough. I mean, I'd be getting into work early in the mornings, about seven or eight o'clock to sort of make up for the work that I couldn't do later in the evenings because I'd be leaving the office pretty much bang on five sometimes at four um so I could get home to then drive up to um Enfield where the training was and then it'd be an hour back and yeah it was just so many nights of just having a bit of toast and collapsing before another really early night and then you just do that four evenings a week um and it sounds like absolute mental physical carnage and it was but I think at that time we were pushing for the WSL like we were really pushing for you know, making Spurs history and all of us getting into this, you know, professional league and none of us had ever anticipated that we would ever be in that position. So I think that was what kind of got us through because, you know, those years were some of the hardest, I think, of all of our lives because we were just juggling. Um, you know, some of the girls had kids as well. Some of the women had kids on the, on the squad and, you know, juggling full-time jobs. And there's a lot of sacrifice that also goes with, um, you know, the time that you spend with friends and family. You're not seeing them in the evenings and partners. So... Yeah, it was absolutely, um, it was it was killer. It was absolutely killer. But there was just such a big aim at the end of it that it didn't feel like it was, um, you know, all gone to waste. And, you know, thank God we actually did get promoted. Otherwise, maybe we would have been in tears at the end of the season. But yeah, it was um, it was big. And then obviously going into the WSL, I 
we went up to full-time uh, professional hours. So we would be in uh, 10 o'clock in the morning and then be in session until about three or four in the day. So at that time I had to have a word with my uh, company, Owen Mitchell, the firm that I'm with at the moment, and say, can I juggle this? Can I kind of do, you know, mornings and evenings? And and they were like, it, it's going to be quite difficult. I mean, you know, when you've got court deadlines coming up, when you've got court hearings that can be scheduled at any point and, you know, you need to be available for your clients as well. And um, they said, you know what, I think probably the best option for you is to take a sabbatical. So took the sabbatical for the year. Um, yeah, left my desk and all my case files on a Friday. And then on Monday, I was kitted up in training and um, out on the pitch like 24-7. It was just, um, yeah, that was a really weird, surreal moment. But it was just beautiful to be able to actually just focus on football and just have solely football for once because I'd, I'd never had that before so yeah it's definitely been a bit of a juggle and then yeah after the WSL going back into Palace then I was doing part-time um, football so it went back down to semi-pro and then just doing evening training so I was able to go back into full-time work but yeah even last year it was four evenings a week and it was the same struggles again so I, I never really learned my lesson <laughs> but it's just you just want to play at the highest level and um, yeah it's addictive but it definitely felt like the right time to to retire, hang up my boots, and move aside <laughs> for the the youngsters coming through. Yeah, I mean that's so great from your current well, current firm that you're still at for them to grant you sabbatical. Massively, um, like fantastic opportunity, and like clearly they've been very supportive of your career, which is great. Yeah, they've um, been amazing. Um, yeah, my bosses have been really um, open to it, and I think obviously with the pandemic, a lot of firms seem to have become a little bit more flexible, and you can kind of work from home a lot more, which has helped. But yeah, having the option to do that sabbatical was, um, yeah, so amazing for me because, I mean, at the time I was 29, so I was getting on in football years. Um, and for them just to say, yeah, go off, feel, like fulfill your dream, do this absolutely incredible thing for a year and then, you know, the option's there for you to come back. And, you know, I'm even more grateful because when I did come back, it was in the middle of the pandemic and, you know, people had real big concerns mm. about their jobs and things like that. So, yeah, it just felt, um, yeah, I felt really lucky. That's just, yeah, it sounds like such a... I mean, such an interesting and amazing kind of career path. But yeah, I was actually really curious, kind of, Katie picked up on that when you were, because you talked earlier on about kind of um, moving firms a little bit. This is a slight mm -hmm. detour, sorry. Um, no, no, go for it. But yeah, I was wondering, was that, so was kind of uh, with your current firm the first time you had to talk to them about kind of your football career as well? Or, because um, I'm essentially, I'm unsure how flexible solicitors firms are with like mm -hmm. timings. Like, was it um, something that if you're moving firms, you'd mention to the firm that you're kind of also pursuing and moving up in your football career as well yeah do you know I've had um mixed feelings with firms I think I mean and bearing in mind this was you know eight nine years ago as well so you know things are completely different now I think with the flexibility side of things but as a trainee obviously I wanted to be in the office as much as possible and we were expected to be in like normal hours kind yeah. of nine to five nine to six um and my firm at the time uh the training contract weren't particularly that flexible at all I mean it did cause a little bit of friction because obviously as a trainee I mean you feel so grateful to have a training contract in the first place um and then to keep asking your boss if you can take time off or can you you know alter your hours a little bit it kind of got a little bit um I just felt like I was letting them down um and I didn't feel like I was um yeah, being a very good trainee I think because you you just want to make a really good impression and especially when you're that young in your career it's um, and yeah, I was constantly asking if I could change things or come in early and take some annual leave like at last minute's notice and things like that. So yeah, that was definitely tough. And then I moved to a firm called Bolt Bird and Kemp in Islington and they were really forward thinking, really progressive firm. You could go in wearing whatever you liked. Um, you could work whatever hours you wanted to, work from home. 
really amazing. So that completely fit with, um, I was with Arsenal at the time and they were doing quite a lot of day training. So I could work in the morning, go to Arsenal, um, go like and do some work in the evening. So that was absolutely phenomenal. Um, and then stayed there for two and a half years and then went to Erwin Mitchell and then, um, yeah, they weren't uh, always as flexible as they have been now. But I think in the last two years, they've done amazing things in sort of making sure that people kind of can work around childcare and the other careers that they're doing. Or um, And loads of people that I know have taken sabbaticals just to go traveling or do like yoga courses and things like that. So, yeah, I think like the work-life balance has definitely improved a lot in the legal sphere. I think it gets a bit of a bad rep sometimes for being like, oh, you're going to be in the office until 11 o'clock every night. You might as well take your camp bed and camp out because you're you you know you're not seeing your friends or family forever. But I think it does depend maybe on the type of law that you do. Um, but yeah, I've been really lucky with, um, yeah, especially Owen Mitchell and Bulkburn and Kemp because they were, yeah, big shout out to them because they were, yeah, incredible. They, I wouldn't be able to do the football stuff if it wasn't for the kind of um, leeway that they gave me. Yeah. Yeah, well, I suppose also you've shown how important it is that firms give the leeway because you've, pursued such like an important other aspect of your career i hope so but yeah definitely. <laughs> <laughs> um okay so let's like go back to your work as a solicitor right now mm-hmm. what team are you in what does your work look like um because yeah obviously a lot of people listening might not even know you know what a solicitor does but specifically the area that you're in would be great to know about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's um, it's probably one of the most controversial areas of law, really. It's um, medical negligence, which obviously it gets also a bit of a bad rep. Um, and it was a kind of area of law that I fell into, really. I'd initially sort of started out uh, as a trainee, wanted to do commercial law. But when I was doing my training contracts, there was a big collapse in the commercial department where I was doing my traineeship. Um sort of there wasn't enough work to kind of go around. So I ended up doing quite a lot of my um, training seats in personal injury and clinic neg. And it wasn't ever an area of law that I'd ever considered doing. I really sort of hadn't shown any interest in it at uni. Um, and then, yeah, I found myself kind of getting involved in the cases. And what I absolutely loved was, uh, and it, it worked out really weirdly, I suppose, because it's kind of very similar to what Erin Brockovich did actually do. So it kind of it went in roundabouts um such a full circle moment it it was I think it's I think it's actually just dawned on me now um but yeah it was um so a lot of like what I do is uh so I've got a caseload of around sort of 20 25 cases um that sort of varies from time to time as they settle or I pick new ones up and you know a lot of the work that I do is um looking after clients who have been through like really traumatic experiences mainly through the NHS it's sort of uh, anything from like delay in diagnosis of cancer cases or orthopedic injuries, amputations, uh, fatal cases um, where something's obviously gone wrong in a normally a hospital or a GP setting and um, it's resulted in really sort of traumatic things taking place. And um, yeah, it's uh, what I absolutely love about it is that you get so much client contact. Like you're you're speaking to people from all different walks of life like there's you know it doesn't matter what your background is how rich or poor or in between or whatever kind of context you're coming from you know people can suffer those kind of injuries at any point in their lives and the impacts that it has I think it's really easy to take for granted I suppose when you're sort of living a relatively healthy day-to-day life like how much it would mean if you suddenly you know came down with a serious injury or I don't know there was something that you know was gravely wrong and um yeah, it's um it's a very emotive job. It gets quite um emotional, like you're dealing with people who are um you know some of the lowest points in their lives, and that's quite tough. And you know, especially if you've got uh, fatal cases where you know think deaths could have been avoided, or you've got cases involving children as well, that can be quite um 
traumatic to hear about but I think I, I love the kind of aspect of you know working with these families to try and get compensation for them so they can kind of try and move forward and get therapies and rehab and things like that but also trying to get answers because a lot of the time they just need some more information about what's happened why it's happened sometimes the hospitals and gp will apologize as well and that's a really cathartic thing to happen that someone just says you know what we we messed up it was it we shouldn't have happened and we're sorry um and that can mean so much to the clients as well so yeah it's definitely um it's a very uh, it's an emotional roller coaster of a job like it's, it's lovely when you settle a case you bring some closure and resolution to what someone's been through but yeah it's um it's a big journey it, it can often take you know three three four five years to from a, the initial inception of a case to to settlement so um and in between there's just so many things that you've got to do um to try and get that result so yeah it's um it's a very interesting area of law very interesting but it's um yeah controversial and uh, yeah a little bit a little bit emotional yeah yeah i mean sounds the cases sound so sort of interesting and particularly that aspect working with the nhs as mm -hmm. well um is it something that you feel that it's helpful to kind of enjoy like that side of things the more medical knowledge that kind of science or is it mainly very like law-based but just kind of happens to be for cases with the nhs um i think it's um so you don't need to have a lot of medical knowledge although you start to naturally build up quite a lot of medical knowledge you start to see patterns in cases about things that are going wrong so you know some of the cases that i've worked on the birthing injury cases where you've got um you know mum's going into to give birth and then um the sort of monitoring hasn't been great and you sort of see patterns of that starting to happen and um and then you start to sort of get used to like the terminology that's used as well and all of a sudden you're speaking in sort of medical terms and saying ctg traces and um it just yeah just stuff that you never thought you'd ever be able to say or understand um but yeah i mean the law is the the law in this area is sort of fairly set it does change from time to time but you do have sort of a, a big bank of um sort of solid case law that's um sort of sets the principles for medical negligence that you can kind of work around so as long as you've got your head around that it's sort of fairly okay as long as you kind of keep up to date with some of the um legislation and case law changes but yeah it's um it's definitely quite technical like it's difficult sometimes reading through some of the reports from like neurologists and neonatologists and things like that and sometimes even i'm sitting there having to read through the ports you know four or five times and oh, i've got no idea can someone help can someone just translate this for me so yeah it's um it's yeah technically it can be quite challenging yeah yeah i, c I can definitely imagine sort of yeah talking about that level of technicality are there in the whole kind of area of medical negligence are there specialisms so i mean we did some research and there were things like child brain injury claims like mm -hmm. is there other very specific sections or is it quite a kind of broad um area and everyone sort of covers all aspects of medical negligence um i think um it depends on how the kind of firm sets up so in the firm that i'm in at the moment there are some uh fee earners who will do uh you know, they'll concentrate they'll have a sort of varied caseload of anything from orthopedic cases delay and diagnosis cancer cases um amputation cases everything um but they will specialize particularly particularly on child brain injury adult brain injury uh, spinal cases as well um and when i first so when i joined bolt bird in kemp as a, a newly qualified i sat in the child brain injury department so that was all i did just child brain injury cases um and because i was quite junior and those cases are worth you know 20 30 mil and obviously i'm not gonna no one was gonna put me in charge of a 30 million pound case as an nq because i just didn't know um i didn't know what i was doing at that point so um 
yeah, so at that point it was very focused, very specific. And I loved being able to deal with cases of that gravity and that nature. Um, but also I started to appreciate that actually I wanted more general uh, clinical negligence experience. And that's why I left to go to Eric Mitchell because I, I felt like I needed more experience of general work uh, and also sort of running smaller cases so I could really build up that kind of experience and feel comfortable you know, running a case from start to finish. So yeah, it does really depend on the firm, but um, I think you naturally gravitate towards cases that are particularly interesting to you. So there's a lot of Fianna's that I work with now who are really interested in uh, cancer cases and yeah, spinal cases, uh, corda equina cases, that kind of thing. So um, yeah, it's, it's quite firm specific, yeah. Mm. They're really, yeah, really interesting sort of specialisms. and you considering it? Well, yeah, I was quite <laughs> interested in kind of the medical intelligence, but I don't know much about it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's really interesting hearing. It's quite niche, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, the kind of, you're describing it as so technical. Um, yeah, no, it sounds really, really interesting. And um, the fact that you kind of have that flexibility, if you want, you know, if you're starting off in a particular area, you can look at different areas. It's really, I think, a nice aspect to... Yeah, massively. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think you naturally kind of build up a bit of a... Not that you can ever like a certain area in that yeah. field, but there's cases that, I don't know, you really gravitate towards and that you feel quite strongly about. Um, yeah, I mean, there was a case, there was an amazing case I had with um, a young woman who, there was a delay in diagnosis of cervical cancer and she was my age. And I think there's cases like that that really resonate with you where she'd, um, the particular facts were that she'd gone to the GP, she'd gone to the trust and she'd said, you know, I'm having all these really unusual symptoms can we get this checked out can can I have a smear and things and each time she went there they kind of palmed it off said you're too young for a smear it's it's you know you, you don't you don't need one and you can kind of see where this is going and then lo and behold she ends up being diagnosed with cervical cancer and there were loads of complications and she ended up with a whole host of horrible surgeries and injuries and um infertility as well and um I think we settled that case back in December but it's like those kind of cases make me quite passionate. I think from a more from a kind of female perspective of the inequalities that sometimes exist in, you know, not being listened to for various reasons and women's health is such a massive thing. So for me that feels like one of the areas that I would quite like to look at more because the way that women are treated in certain environments is not always obviously you guys yeah. definitely must know. <laughs> yeah, I think every woman kind of knows. Um yeah, it, that, that, that kind of case really resonated with me because there was just so much unfairness and inequality in that particular case that, that went a lot deeper than um, the sort of issues that the NHS has generally in the you know, under-resourced and understaffed. Um, yeah. It's, it's interesting you say that because I've seen recently there's a female doctor who's published a book. Okay. I haven't read it yet but it's got really good reviews from what I've heard so far. And it's literally on that, like on how like females are impacted by the healthcare system mm -hmm. and like all of that that's not talked about. So maybe I'll link that book if anyone wants to have a look at it. Not that I can Absolutely. say it's good because I haven't read it yet. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it's interesting because I, I saw that come up the other day and I was like, wow, I really want to read that. That sounds super interesting. Oh my God, The fact yeah. that you've seen that like firsthand, the effects of massively like, like female health I think in the NHS I mean this could be a complete rabbit <laughs> hole now but um <laughs> yeah like when you think about how periods are managed period pains you know really severe period pains um yeah sort of all the the you know, really just yeah all of it just yeah. birth um yeah just all those kind of you know women's health issues that I just don't think are uh, it's a very sort of gender specific issue and I don't think that the NHS is really mm dealing with it appropriately but 
Pickies. quite satisfying that you, can, <laughs> you know like that situation that case you can like bring that to a close and like yeah, yeah I think um that particular case was amazing because I'd met the client quite a few times and met her family and um the compensation then could really help her move forward and like thankfully the sort of there was a closure to her injuries and mm. she started to feel um a bit better in certain aspects and um I think she just wanted justice mm. for what had happened um and the worst thing is kind of showing a report to a client that says actually w what you've been through could have been avoided had mm. some had had this x y and z not happen and mm. the other side of that is that you know you do read witness statements from doctors and I have so much empathy and sympathy for, for doctors and nurses and GPs because obviously with the budget cuts mm. and the way the NHS is at the moment, it's really difficult to do your job properly mm. when you when there's not enough people, you don't have enough resources, you're being given two minutes for an appointment or it's so it's not I I don't like suing the NHS. Do you know yeah. I, it sounds like a really weird thing to say given the job that I do because I, I have so much um yeah, just sympathy for, for what they do. Like 99.9% .9 of doctors go in every day wanting to make a, a, a massive positive difference. And um, on the other side of that, they're hampered from doing that and people come out yeah. with really bad But I think you injuries. can feel both those ways, like they're not mutually exclusive. So it's yeah, it's, that you can- Yeah, it's a bit of a conflict, but yeah. it's, both, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's, a, yeah, it's a morally and ethically very complex mm. job. <laughs> yeah. Just out of curiosity, um, this is very, again, NHS specific, but with the um, sort of settling with the NHS, does that impact those sort of in individual doctors? I don't know if that's something that you'd know from the solicitor's firm side of it, but does that impact the specific doctors or is it more that the NHS like, of trust as a whole uh, deals with the, the claims in the cases? Yeah, so the trust, so nine times out of 10, if we're bringing a claim, it'll be against the NHS trust uh, or the, um, well, they're insured by um, NHSR. Um, they're, they're big insurers. So they'll sort of be the ones who really run the litigation. So it won't be the doctors themselves who will ever be sued unless sometimes in private practice, if doctors right. have their own individual insurance, then they might be uh, liable. But yeah, in NHS settings, it's pretty much the um, the trust. Um, yeah, but obviously, and then the doctors get involved if they're asked to do witness statements and things like that. But it's not them who are financially liable for uh, yeah for the claims. Yeah, really just, interesting. Just like to clarify, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> today. Um, okay, so moving away from law a bit and going back to sport just yes. briefly. Um, so there are a lot of student athletes, probably at a university level for sure. Um, but not many people will carry on post university. And okay, to be fair, maybe I'm not talking about the level you're playing, but even just, you know, involvement mm -hmm. in sport. Do you have any advice for people that want to continue being active or continue with their sports if it's like a higher level of play um, for them to carry that on after their studies, you know? Yeah, I think um, a big part of it is being honest about the kind of level that you want to play, I suppose. Um, yeah, and I think um, now that there's so much progression in elite sports and the demand on your time, the amount it costs even to play elite sport, like um, like the travel that's involved, like you, I mean, to play elite football, you probably need a car to get yourself to training. You need to, you know, um, have enough money to eat really good food. You need to be football boots, football gloves, um, you know, eating the right stuff. So um, it's not a, elite sport is not something that anyone sort of goes into lightly because it's just, it takes such a toll on your body physically emotionally mentally the sacrifices that you make in terms of you know friends and family and 
sounds like I'm trying to put people off playing elite sport, but I mean, it's obviously fantastic. It's such a, um, you know, the buzz, the adrenaline, the kind of play, like the experiences that you have, the competitiveness, it's, um, there's nothing like it. There's just nothing like it. So I'd always say like, if you wanted to go into elite sport, like I think by the time you've reached that age anyway, you probably know that mm -hmm. if, it, if it's something you want to continue with, but it's very difficult to juggle, you know, studies with elite sport. But I would always say you kind of have to because, yeah elite sport for any athlete is a very vulnerable career at any point you could be told you're not good enough or you could uh, suffer an injury and and then you don't have anything to fall back on if you don't have study or another career or something sort of a backup plan um and it sounds like quite a pessimistic thing to say to always have a backup plan but I've seen so many people you know in the WSL and championship who've you know been absolutely flying living their absolute best lives scoring goals saving goals whatever it is and um and then, yeah, they suffer an ACL injury and they're out for an entire year. And that's just, um, and especially like as you get older, um, you know, you're more susceptible to that kind of things. And sport is one of those careers that it has a time cap. You will naturally get to a point where you're at the peak of your career. And then after that, you will deteriorate because there's so many flipping brilliant youngsters <laughs> coming through that are sort of benefiting from, you know, greater information about sports, greater nutrition, greater, you know, dietitian input and all these things so yeah it's it's one of those careers that you really need to think about a backup plan or a career after sport because um it's just uh it's such a short-lived thing so it, it just goes so quickly like I never thought that I would be sitting here and saying that I'm retired like I thought that I'd just play football forever and that would be it but you know when the girls in your squad are calling you the grandma of palace it just feels like the time to kind of gracefully move away from playing um yeah, so I think that would be my advice is to always have a backup plan if you're going to be playing at elite level. And, you know, if you're playing sport or just want to continue, especially for football, especially women's football, like in London, there are so many like wonderful grassroots clubs that are so inclusive and so lovely. And, you know, for anyone from, you know, 16, 17 years old to, you know, I've been coaching women who are 60, 65 years old who are playing football for the first time. And, you know, they go along for fun, fitness, um, you know, socials, whatever it is. And, yeah, there's really no excuse not to mm. be involved in sport because you can do that at any level just for fun. Yeah. No, that was such a great answer. And like having just finished studying and having gone from playing a team sport university to now, like, what am I meant to do? Mm -hmm. Hopefully you've inspired me. There's to no excuse. Yeah. <laughs> what were you playing? What was your sport? Lacrosse. Oh, really? Yeah. I know nothing about lacrosse at all. Just I always describe it as like hockey, but in the air. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Is it quite physical like is it quite like aggressive i get the, like i can be can i'll tell be, you yeah. what what's interesting men's is contact women's is non-contact really it, but it's still quite aggressive like that's you can get some bad injuries i've had my fair few of black eyes from it yeah. but yeah do you want it to be contact i would quite like it to be because i yeah. play defense as well so i'm like come at me right. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway enough about me <laughs> no that's so interesting i know nothing about it but the thought of like a hard ball flying through the air at head level just scares the absolute um yeah out but of the me. thought of kicking <laughs> a football i think i'd oh, miss <laughs> <laughs> feels like it's a lot safer yeah. <laughs> we had this sorry such a massive detour but we went to the same school mm -hmm. and we had this really old teacher that everyone said that 
she'd like lost an eye playing lacrosse. What? I've, yeah. ne- I've never heard, heard that. that. I went to the junior, <laughs> I might be because I was a junior and everyone like, she has a fake eye. She lost it <laughs> lacrosse, probably completely untrue, but. Um, oh, that's convinced me never to try lacrosse. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely not. I, I quite like my eyes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't the biggest. But, um, also, I was just wondering, cause you said about, um, I mean, so nice to hear sort of like 65 year old woman mm-hmm. picking up football for the first time. Has the Euros had a big impact on that? Or has this continued? Um, I think over the past two or three years, I've definitely seen an increase and a rise in the amount of um, women's and non-binary um, teams available in London. I think, um, I mean, the views that I have are quite London-centric. I mean, I don't know what the situation is in other parts of the country. Um, I don't know whether that they sort of have access to the same kind of resources, but definitely in London, I've seen loads of clubs pop up, um, especially for five-a-side teams uh, in and around sort of like Hackney, Shoreditch, around there. Like You just can't help bump into um like a lush life or a gold diggers or um you know one of those amazing teams so um i definitely think the euros has had a big impact in the youngsters i mean the amount of like young girls i saw at the games was just unreal like screaming their heads off like leah williamson shirts on um so i think the like the participation from the youngsters in that tournament has been absolutely massive but you know, there were so many beautiful campaigns, um, not just to do with the youth, but inspiring women generally. I mean, there were some lovely campaigns that were to do with like the old lionesses back in, um, you know, the 1970s and like the journey they've taken and how important they've been. It's not just about inspiring the next generation, but it's about inspiring all generations of women to get into sport because the older generations, you know, especially women in the sort of 50s, 60s, 70s, wouldn't have had the opportunities that that we did or were told not to play sport or to do baking and economics or whatever it is. And there were so many missed opportunities there for these women to play. And now those opportunities do exist for them women to, do you know what, it's not too late. Like there's so so many clubs out there who would be happy to take on 50, 60, 17 year old women and, you know, have their first time playing football. Cause um, yeah, I've definitely seen a lot more of that. So it's been, um, yeah, the tournament couldn't have gone any better, I think, for raising the profile of women's football and, um, encouraging so many more women into sport and to feel inspired. It was just such a beautiful tournament. Yeah, I just wish I could do it all over again. Like I wish I could relive July, the whole of July. Yeah. That is so that is so good because there's such kind of an attitude sometimes of like you, you get to a certain age and like you're too old for certain things. And I think mm-hmm. particularly like women's sport, there is that kind of thing like wh- why are you playing a team sport if you know you're this old? Whereas there's just no need for that really. And so good to see that it's kind of moving on and people are getting involved no matter their age. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, sometimes there's a perception of, you know, if, if you're a 40, 50 year old woman, then all you're going to do is Zumba or a spin class. Like that's your, that's the exercise that you'll do. But it's like, no, there's so many like team sports out there that are, you know, open and available and who will take on players who, you know, who haven't ever played before. Like it's just such an inclusive, lovely environment. So yeah, it's, yeah, it's been a really, really lovely couple of years to kind of see that that develop because obviously it's amazing to expire the next gen but yeah what about all the other gens yeah, yeah. <laughs> well now focusing on as you've talked about you you're clearly um sort of alongside your career um obviously you have your work in activism mm-hmm. that has made a really big impact um so can you just expand on your work and we've also seen that's resulted in the football blacklist award 2020 the diva players player awards 2021 yeah a bit of a jazzy name yeah that sounds <laughs> so interesting um yeah I think um that kind of all came as a bit of a surprise I think um after it all kind of kicked off after I left Spurs um 
and at Spurs, I mean, after I left, I was quite vocal about some of the things that had gone on behind the scenes. Um, you know, Spurs being such a massive multi-million pound and billion pound club. And, you know, we'd just gone into WSL. It was our first time playing fully elite. And there were just a lot of things behind the scenes that I just really wasn't happy with. The training facilities and just the way that we were treated in certain environments. And it was just so, no one was, I think everyone kind of, was like, oh, well, we're never going to be paid the same in the men's. And I was like, it's not even to do with pay. Like, I'm not even that fussed about the pay at all. Um, it was just about the equality of treatment with resources and kit and pitch spaces and food and things like that. And it was just, some parts of it were just so below standard. So after I'd left Spurs, because um, when you're in that environment, I mean, it's so hard to talk out and speak out against your club because they're your employer. It's, it's really... Um, and you, you're relying on them and you know that if you do say something, there's going to be a massive backlash. It could potentially affect your contract. Um, it could potentially affect how you're seen by other clubs. They might be a bit reluctant to take you on because they might think, oh, she's a bit of a troublemaker. So, um, yeah, but at the time I left, yeah, I left Spurs and then I was 20, no, I was 30 when I left. Um, and I think I was just a bit older and I think I was just, I didn't really... Um, not that I didn't care, but I think I just had less of those pressures because I knew that I'd done my professional year. I knew that I was going to go back and, you know, play sport and I'd had the security of my job. So I didn't feel like I was, you know, in a really precarious position. And, you know, I spoke up against some of the stuff and it got picked up by Sky. And I think it was the first time that um, a player in the sort of WSL kind of said, you know what, the stuff going on here isn't, it's not right. Um, and then it kind of exploded. And then obviously... Um, the George Floyd um, incident happened, Black Lives Matter really kicked off and the diversity and equality agenda seemed to explode in the last, you know, two, three years off of the back of that. And and then all of a sudden there was a lot of focus in, you know, speaking to players from the LGBTQ plus community, from, you know, the black and Asian and uh, mixed race community. And um, there wasn't really a lot of players in the championship in WSL who, there's a lot of LGBTQ plus players, but there's not, the representation in terms of you know um, black and Asian players in the WSL and championships fairly low. So because I'd spoken up, I think on the Spurs issue, I was naturally then being asked to speak up against all these other issues. And it was the first time that people had really started to care about, um, especially female players' opinions on on things. And I mean, it was scary at first because the more you sort of had these opinions and you know views on what the FA could be doing or what clubs could be doing to kind of help diversity and inclusion um you'd always get this kind of backlash from people on twitter saying like shut the hell up and worse and um yeah abuse started and i'd just never been used to um one anyone sort of really caring about what i had to say and two caring so much that they had to dm me really horrible stuff and and it um it, yeah, it got it got a little bit scary. Um, and then I, I mean, I've got quite a good support network. I've got my family and friends and my partner at the time who was amazing. And, um, you know, speaking to them about the kind of things that I was um, nervous about was, was incredible. Um, but yeah, just through that sort of, you know, I was being asked to do more talks and to, um, it helps you kind of formulate your view. I think the more you, you talk about it, the more you speak to other people in and around that sphere, the more you kind of hone in on what you really feel about some of these topics because, even though I'm mixed race and even though I'm gay, it doesn't make me an expert in LGBTQ plus issues and, you know, race issues. Like I'm absolutely not. Like, and I'm only speaking from, you know, the experiences that I've had and, and the experience that I've had have been fairly good in comparison to, you know, what other people have faced. So 
Um, yeah, at the start, I think people were looking to me to be the kind of font of all knowledge on race and LGBTQ. And I was like, I, I can only say what I kind of feel. But um, yeah, it was amazing. It was amazing sort of um, being asked to speak about those things. And then, yeah, the more I kind of did it, I suppose, the more, um, uh, you know, yeah. I was being asked to do more and more of it. It just kind of escalated, and then um, yeah, got yeah the award, and that was just yeah. I just uh, I don't know. Yeah, I just uh, lost my mind a little bit when when they said that. Yeah, um, but yeah, we did like an online award ceremony, and that was lovely. And obviously, I shaved my mum and dad, and uh, yeah, it was really really cute. But yeah, it was yeah another bit of a surreal one. Yeah. <laughs> well, a massive congratulations. Yeah, such Cheers, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and then I think probably just finally. Um, from my understanding, you've got your own goalkeeping coaching company? Yes. Empower Goalkeeping? Yes. Can you tell us about that? I think that'll be a nice place to finish off the discussion because that's another amazing thing you've done <laughs> as if you didn't have time. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I started that uh, a year and a half ago. Um, and it, it was basically sort of born out of the idea that, I mean, I'd had lots of goalkeeper coaching and the majority of it had been from um, white, middle-aged men and like these coaches were incredible this is not me sitting there and slating white middle-aged men they were fantastic ua for a ua for b type coaches they were incredible and i owed them my career um but there's a big lack of diversity i think in coaching generally and especially in goalkeeper coaching um and a lot of grassroots clubs where they've not got you know massive resources have always focused on outfield coaching and no one's ever really thought about you know how do we help our goalies and a lot of the the women that I was, coach, was coaching were kind of saying, well, you know, we don't, we just go in goal, we do it on rotation. None of us really want to go in goal. We're pretty scared because none of us really know what we're doing or how to save. And um, I did a bit of coaching with Gold Diggers in, in Hackney and they'd sort of asked me to do something more regularly. And um, I thought, okay, well, there's a bit of a gap here in sort of, you know, just having coaching that's focused on girls, women and non-binary people, like whatever level. Um, especially at grassroots because they just wasn't getting anything. Um, and then, yeah, sort of, yes, yeah, started the company and then uh, I've done sort of a few sessions with gold diggers, uh, a few girls only camps, uh, which has been amazing because that's sort of taken off a little bit because there's just so many girls now who want to get in goal and that's been massively helped by, you know, Mary Earps having an absolutely outstanding Euros as well. So, um, yeah, we, we did our first camp back in summer last year and I managed to get um Sophie Bagley who is now the Man United goalkeeper um yeah to to come down and, and be involved in it and and that was just unreal and like yeah just having so many girls who were just interested in goalkeeping and it was just it just felt like a really safe space for them to just you know make mistakes and be girls and just like have a laugh as well like the whole premise of it was not just you're going to sit here and do drills and do technical stuff it was like let's build these girls confidence because a lot of these girls had been training with boys or had been kind of pushed to the side or you know had been called names or whatever it was and a lot of goalkeeping I think is confidence and you know learning from your mistakes and you're only young I mean yeah so I just wanted to create something that was a bit fun and technical and just very women girls and non-binary orientated and um yeah it's been like some of the best moments of my life like coaching like the girls and um women and non-binary people yes yeah, That's it's been, amazing. It's been lovely. Yeah, really lovely. And just super rewarding, I'm sure. Oh my God, massively. Yeah, you two have to come down for a session. Yeah, <laughs> I think just try it out. But I would yeah. Love it, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, that's incredible. And just finally, like, thank you so much for taking the time to come on to Law Talks. 
No, um, not at all. Thank you guys for having me. I've really enjoyed the chat. I've been so waffled on. Um, <laughs> but no, th- yeah, thank you so much for inviting me on. I really appreciate it. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.